0: of the 10 CDs for a penny. The show where we talk about mild music mags and culture and stuff. I'm Jackson Maine. to me this episode is John Waller and Noyan Hilmy and we're going to be discussing Rolling Stone July 1995. I picked this issue solely because it was 1995. It was the summer. It's the summer right now. It's getting hot. The cover features Jim Carrey on the beach looking red. Everything about it just seemed Cooked and hot and summery. He's on the cover where we barely talked about Jim Carrey. However, what I'm excited about this episode is that we talk about Bush. Not that I'm a big Bush fan, but actually where the conversation went. They're a brand new band in 1995, they had a debut record in 1994, it got really big. This profile on them is happening while they're on tour, promoting their debut record, Sixteen Stone. They've upgraded tour buses a few times. They're getting bigger and bigger as they go on tour. But Bush just weren't that interesting a band. They tried to profile them, but they didn't have a lot to say. Which made the reviewer sort of take this tone of making fun of them. However, even though Bush were becoming incredibly successful, and we all know the career they ended up having in the 90s, I sort of felt badly for them reading this article because... Number one, the reviewer was kind of making fun of them. Number two, they were highlighting how much people hated them. Reviewers, music snobs. They really hated Bush because they thought they were just ripping off bands in the grunge era, which was still happening. It was on the decline, but it was still happening. They didn't like them because they thought they weren't unique. They were just ripping off bands that were still happening. So I thought this discussion was going to be about bands having to live in a post-genre world and being too influenced and thus being hated. John and Noyan thought it was way more about Bush not being a cool band. At least John thought that. And why they weren't cool. And why the bands they were ripping off, apparently, were cool. Was it because Bush didn't have a good story behind them? Or was it just because we're all music lovers and we just love to hate bands? In any case, this ended up being a really exciting episode for me because I thought the conversation took a turn where I didn't think it was going to go and it ended up being a great comment on music culture and why we love bands, why we don't, why one band is cool, why another isn't. It doesn't even matter if the band is successful. Yeah, probably not. But anyways, let's just go back and relive the summer of 1995 with the July issue
1: of Rolling Stone magazine.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the pod. I'm back with John Waller and Noyan Hilmi. John, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Noyan, uh, what's shaking on your end?
1: Uh, not too much. How are you? I'm good. I'm good.
0: It's the summer now, guys.
1: Oh, staying cool. I wish I was doing that.
0: <laughs> John, you had some. Hopefully, AC the change. AC
1: will not be broken in my building for much longer.
0: John, I feel like you you moved to this new apartment specifically for air conditioning and podcasting within air conditioning. <laughs> and it and, uh, looks like uh, you've, been, you've been fooled again.
1: Yeah, I've been bamboozled.
0: And we're doing a summer issue here. I picked this issue just because it was a summer issue. It's been so hot this week. I was like, I feel like we need to do something summery. It's the July 1995 issue of Rolling Stone. Jim Carrey is on the cover in a provocative uh, uh, photo where uh, the copper tone dog is pulling down his shorts. I don't know if we're really going to talk about Jim Carrey, though. There's a giant article on him here, and I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. What this
1: have been? Some of 95. I guess, how many it, movies did he have?
0: So, uh, okay, I will. I mean, I will talk about that It's because I did look it up. So we're in 95 here. 94, he had Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber, and now we're into Batman Forever.
1: Oh, so this is like the Batman promo. Yeah,
0: exactly. Can you imagine that this guy went from Ace Ventura, which was a giant indie hit essentially, and right afterward, I was thinking they must have they must have shown like the rough cut to producers. Like they must have had a buzz on him already. He had an amazing agent, I I would assume, because within that time, they were shooting Ace Ventura in 93 and they still got Dumb and Dumber and the mask ready for 1994 <laughs> release. So he had an incredible year of shooting, and he was at the top of his game. He just came not out of nowhere. People knew him from living Living Color, but my God, did he become a superstar fast?
2: He didn't make his mark yet with uh, Ace Ventura: When Nature Calls, quite yet. Yeah, but it's coming.
0: Yeah, Ooh. later this year, I think that was 95. <laughs> Zing. <laughs>
2: is 90 is 95 but yeah so i'm sure that this is a promo for Batman Forever mm-hmm. and then Nature Calls came out the same year.
0: Yeah. Not 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 the same uh not the same Ace Ventura we were all hoping for.
2: Same jokes just a whole other movie with yeah. the same jokes.
0: Let's just put him in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> How about this Oakley ad guys? There's an ad for Oakley sunglasses and This just brings back so many memories. These glasses were the shit. These Oakley Full Metal Jackets, they're called. Uh, This is almost like an Apple ad. It's actually really perfect. It's just sunglasses. It's someone with, like, it's just, like, a dark-figured face. I'll post this so everyone can see. And just sunglasses, just staring at you. Oakleys were the shit in the 90s. Like, these glasses were, like, $250 glasses, probably. They were really expensive by 1995 standards. And you know, every fifth kid might've had them if they had the money to do it. And then there was a million easy spinoffs, but like these were like the template of sunglasses in the nineties. These like kind of wrap around bug eyed sunglasses.
1: Um, I mean, okay. I was going to s- speak as like teenage John and say they were the sunglasses of douchebags. Really? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that was, that was, that that was sort of my view of them at the time. That that was who had them. Really, Is that like almost to a T? Everyone who had Oakleys like this were pretty douchey.
0: Now, I want to ask a question. There's a difference between 1994, 1995 Oakleys here, and like 2000s Oakleys. So when you got to like the like like the year 2000. And it's I mean, like I'm kind of thinking like uh, sort of, I
1: guess, any seven ninety eight, maybe.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking later these became douchier, but at this time, this was like cool snowboarder kind of wear, like skater wear. Um, right, it's right, okay. It's more like in that era, and then it's one of those things that probably got co-opted by like jockey douchebags later. But these at the time I remember being so fucking cool. Like but just this style, these style of sunglasses, these like they were just replicated so much. These like wraparound, like everybody had some sort of version of these. Even if you were wearing like the five dollar version, I definitely had these.
1: I also think of like seeing these Oakleys backwards.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: On the back of someone's head, yeah.
1: I've probably seen that as much as I've actually seen someone wearing them over their eyes.
0: Do you think that because of that, like they just went into such a douchey territory and then now that style is still exists, but it's still kind of like on like a just a the bad version of style, like everyone with a bad version of style is still wearing some version of that. I was thinking that I was shocked that with the the 90s style like revolution that's happened like this like where it's had its second life with so many things like there's so many eras that i've seen like spring up in the past like 5 10 years like right now we're definitely in like a late 90s era style there's a lot of flared pants and baggy clothes and things like that happening i can't believe that oakley did not like jump on this like doc martens did and like just just really push that out there because I feel like they could have capitalized and like brought this style back to, you know, 20 year olds right now. I'm not
2: paying attention to Oakley's marketing, but who knows that they didn't try. Right.
1: I I guess, but I just feel like I I would have seen it. I think there's like a different type of nostalgia there. Right. Like, um, I I think some of the style that's come back from the nineties can be associated with things, whether it's music or TV, and like, but what do we associate Oakleys with? While well, I started, and I don't necessarily have a good association with them, you mentioned <laughs> snowboard culture, um, which is a good point. But is that really something that people are nostalgic for? No, that's a really good. It's point, just
2: John. funny how some some brands just kind of like they they find a second life, and some brands don't. And who knows what it is? It's just human nature, right? Like the silver baggy pants you know somehow came back but i don't think it matters if they're silver right they're just baggy like raver pants right mm-hmm. but i think silver owned that back then
0: music obviously brought a lot of this style back so i think somehow people were latching onto the alternative sound of the 90s in the past 10 years and creating that music again and that just brought back plaid yep. shirts around waists and and doc martens I read like there was recently a, uh, a Twitter or TikTok kind of campaign against it. was really funny. It was against millennials. Whatever that, what's the new generation? What's the one happening right now? Is it Gen Z?
1: Oh, there's a lot of things. There's Gen Z. Uh, oh, it's probably Gen Z actually. So, although I don't even know if that's accurate, but
0: so whatever the youngest generation is right now, like of like 19, 20 year olds on TikTok. They were making fun of millennials for tight pants and they're all wearing these baggy clothes now. And I just immediately thought, do you guys not realize that we already did that? That it was us that actually fucking did that. And then we got tired of it and went skinny. And now you're just co-opting that style. So when I see these kids, you know, five years ago when I saw them with the the plaid shirts around the waist and the Doc Martens, like everybody looked exactly like a replica of of us from 1994 i just kept thinking do you guys get that we already did this do you know that or do you think that this is new
1: i mean that's it's kind of an interesting question because i remember in high school in the 90s 70s and 80s clothes they appealed to me but i knew they were old i knew that like i was wearing things that sometimes literally were uh, for um, uh, 20 years before like another thing that I'm curious about too is uh, cost and price like I mean I diss Oakley's because when I was in high school I didn't really have much respect for expensive clothes um, or brand name things I was a value village vintage guy and so a lot of our nostalgic clothes came cheap Are like, you know, 80s, 70s referencing clothes actually came from them. But now it's like where, um, you know, kids are buying nineties outfits in department stores, right? Is that where they're getting them?
0: Yeah, I think so. And- I think things are being replicated. I also do think a lot of kids are thrift shopping.
1: Well, that's good to know. I'm glad to hear that. That's what I was wondering about. I hope that they're not paying top dollar lots of money for all of these things. I mean, I would imagine, I would hope a pair, a new pair of Doc Martens still costs as much as it did, but those are boots. You know, you can pay a lot for boots. Yeah. But a uh, flannel shirt you're going to tie around your waist, yeah, if you're paying more than like 20 bucks for that, you're getting uh, suckered.
2: Well, think in 1994, like we're thinking about. The, the youth of today kind of ripping off our styles, but we are ripping off the 80 styles anyway, right? Like docs were not, were not our thing. We, we co-opted that and docs have gone through different cycles over the decades of popularity and they just kind of keep coming back. Right. I wanted a James jacket and a bomber jacket when I was, when I was that age, I never had either, but they would have been pretty cool. Um, you know, and then skinny jeans and, and baggy jeans just kind of keep back going back and forth. Is like where like the, the the sixties were like skinny, and then the disco thing was like kind of like a baggy weird thing, and then back to skinny, and 90s were baggy again. I don't know, it's just things fashion cyclical like that, right?
0: Noyan, about docs, you keep saying they will always come back, but what were they before grunge era? Like I can think of, like oi skinhead guys from England pretty much before that. Like, I mean, they had their like 80s run with that. Then they went into grunge era. Then they disappeared. Then they came back 20 years later. Do you have another like moment you think that they were really big?
2: I think just British mod rockers, you know, like that mod style was really, really popular in the 80s. And I think that the 90s wanted to co-op that.
0: Like when they were developed, they were just like a working man shoe. So they were for... What am I trying to say? Like They were functional. They were just functional work shoes, like work boots. And I know that the style of the, like, oi punk rocker guys from England, like the skinhead, not Nazi skinheads. I'm saying, like, the actual, like, punk skinhead guys. They just co-opted that style from, like, British dock workers. That's what they looked like. They were just all, like, short hair bomber jackets and uh, Doc Martens and they wanted to co-op that style because they wanted to be close to the uh you know like the people like they're like we're the working man's people and like that's what the style they wanted to show that they were like common people and that's where it came from Doc Martens were founded in 1947 wow so like that's, when that's they were way actually, off yeah so that but I mean when did they actually get popularized it said so by 1952 they were really the sales had taken off so they were developed in the in 47 the 50s they were really popular but again they weren't like a stylish boot i don't think until the 80s
1: yeah that was what i always assumed about them they i always assumed they were a brand it was just uh practical for a long time and then especially with grunge where that whole style was just sort of practical old boring clothes being like worn and repurposed and then someone wearing it got cool. Then it was cool.
0: Yeah. Because like
1: flannel shirts weren't invented to be cool. They had, they were like, Functional, boring shirts for a long time. And then someone got cool wearing them.
0: Yeah, literally Nirvana. I mean, these guys were just from a logging community. They all just shopped at Value Village and they bought flannel shirts to keep warm. They had ripped jeans just because they were just dirty kids and they're wearing docks and they wore wallet chains because they were crowd surfing and they kept losing their wallets. Wallet chains were not cool. They they were just again functional, but all you had to get was one Kurt Cobain to wear a flannel shirt, ripped jeans, a wallet chain, Doc Martins. And the country just exploded.
1: But I think the point is, the point I was trying to make was that like parts of it, parts of style will come back exactly and part of it will be adapted. Right. So you know, we're always kind of expecting. Well, what's the next decade that's going to get referenced? Well, you know, parts may come back, but maybe parts won't. Like, I I'd be more curious instead of saying, well, are the two thousands going to come back? You know, is emo hair did it ever really go away? Or are the sixties going to come back? Are the seventies going to come back? Are the eighties going to come back? Or is it always going to be like? Even in the 90s, there were some kids who were all in on like 60s hippie.
0: Mm, yeah, for sure.
1: You know, so there were some people who were extremely current with their Oakleys and their billabong or whatever else. And, uh, you know, I was wearing 80s shirts and 70s pants. And then there were like, you know, almost full on hippies. And then there's skaters that were kind of a very current. Thing that wasn't really referencing anything before. So we don't need Oakleys to come back, do we? Really? You know what? You know what You know what can come back? Airwalk. Yes, John. Airwalk was rad. Right.
0: When is that happening? Because there is an ad here for Airwalk. When is Airwalk happening? Airwalk were fucking cool. Airwalk kind of came hand in hand with these Oakleys, this, this style, I feel. However... airwalk was another brand like a lot of skate shoes that of course you know blew up and then got kind of co-opted by everyone and they weren't cool anymore when i was in grade nine airwalk was like the cool skate shoe and only skaters had them and then they blew up
1: yeah co-opted by like people like me (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I had airwalk. I had airwalk like 97ish. I was not a skater, although I did hang out with some people who were. I like was skaters. a skater. I
2: had a skateboard. I skated with people and I had airwalks.
1: Yeah. I, I- think you think I had a pair of green airwalks that I literally ground the heel to dust. <laughs>
0: No, I think Airwalk went from skate culture into like kind of cool alternative culture. And then of course just, you know, by the end of the nineties made its way into, you know, pay less shoes kind of thing. Like they just weren't the they just didn't end up being the cool thing anymore. That's it. Like everything has its day. So it's like it goes from super niche to a little more, you know, like of an alternative crowd. And then of course it just blows up.
1: I was just gonna ask if if you can still buy airwalks. Is it just a zombie brand, or is it like still, still a quality shoe?
0: I don't know, but I'm waiting for those these teen Like why again? Why did Docs come back, but Airwalks didn't? You know, you wonder. Someone loved Nirvana. Docs.
2: Docs will always come back. Docs will always come back. Like they'll die down in like five years, and then like ten years from now, they'll be cool again.
1: But what, well, it's interesting because if you want to talk shoes outside of Docs.
2: Uh, Converse, yeah, was it
1: uh, the All Stars? Like they, those came back. If they ever really went away,
2: yeah, bands. I came feel like back. Chuck's never went away.
1: Yeah, but maybe that's why. Maybe skate shoes won't come back because they have the nostalgic shoe. If you want like a nostalgic shoe, you go for the Converse. It's
0: true. I mean, those were just bigger, more established brands. Airwalk kind of had his day, but they were a little a little more niche like simple remember simple shoes they were they were pretty popular and then they just kind of left i don't know fashion's funny do you want to talk about this bush article let's do it the point of this article when i'm reading it it's a profile on bush in 1995 this is when they're brand new so they had already released 16 stone their debut record It had gotten really big in the past year. It came out in 94. I remember it in 94 more clearly than 95 almost. Now this article is talking about, you know, obviously the interviewer joins them on tour. They join them in Memphis. They're actually going through Graceland, which is pretty funny. The whole tone of this article is the interviewer sort of making fun of them and sort of pointing out all the flaws in a band like Bush. It really sucks for them because I feel like gavin rosdale is a genuine guy he just wanted to make a band but he just happened to be a band that was influenced so much by this recent previous generation of grunge that was that had already happened and was just on the decline and now he had made this band two years earlier so this is 1995 the record came out in 1994 he had started the band two years before that so he started it in the like the apex of like grunge and alternative music you know this generation by the time he got famous that had already kind of declined or was on its way out and everybody was just making fun of these guys they were alt light they were grunge light they were a pretty band that were getting signed because they were good looking i don't mind bush's songs they're totally fine they're definitely marketable but they even describe them in this article as the band that you get into when you're only listening to the radio and you're only listening to or watching MTV and you haven't discovered the underground and you haven't discovered your local indie scene. And that's a perfect description for them. I think, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because every single one of us has got into those bands and then found something different.
2: I don't know. I don't agree with that only because i I was a huge Nirvana fan. I was a huge fan of indie rock and local Toronto and Canadian bands. And I still liked Bush. And I know that there was a lot of haters, but I was like, I, I, you know, they, they got a lot of flack cause, cause they came after Nirvana. They got a lot of flack cause they were, you know, Gavin was good looking. Um, but at the root of it, I was like, you know, I like these songs. I like that album. It had some really good songs on it. So I think that, you know, just in my biased opinion, because I actually liked it, I don't know if that's that's fair to say. I know that they were really mainstream and they seemed probably more manufactured and safe than, you know, the, the era of rock that came before it. And I think that that's why they caught so much flack. They weren't. They weren't dangerous, and this article kind of illustrates that they were really safe. He's wearing a Sex Pistols shirt. They're like, I don't know.
0: Yeah, they were saying it, he's
2: it talks about a how tentative. handsome each of them are. I, I don't know.
1: It's weird. Yeah, I mean, my takeaway uh, from the article is that you know there seems to be this unspoken sense that you know he's second generation grunge band but he is not you know they they talk about they compare him to you know uh eddie vetter being fucked up uh quote the way we like our rock stars and rossdale doesn't seem like that but he is wearing a sex pistol shirt but he himself is not a punk you know he uh smells uh like rose oil (laughs) and the writer is wondering like why does he smell so girly and like and yeah he is safe and it's interesting because you know the writer almost gives the game away when it says the way we like our rock stars that there's a sort of well who is this guy who is making grunge music but is not a dirt bag um, with, like, a suicidal dirtbag or something, you know? Right. The final paragraph is about him telling the audience, telling the boys in the audience to um, take care of the girls who are crowd surfing.
0: Right.
1: You know, and how everyone should be safe. And that was not necessarily, that probably was an exceptional thing to do then. And yet now, that would be hip and cool. That was not a hip and cool thing to do then. It would be now. Um, Being well-adjusted and making music was uh, a strange thing then. And that seems to be what this article is kind of getting across
0: especially at that time when we had just come out of this era where they were just pushing so many bands where everybody had to be fucked up in some way and dark and depressed and suicidal. And then you have this band that has been influenced by the past four or so years of this music and then comes out and his music isn't cheery at all. It's it's, there's a lot of depression and angst and stuff in his music. It's, It's not safe, I don't think, but it it just it just happens to be that he was influenced by that first generation. And when you can't dig up any dirt on the sky and when they say in this article as well, to your point, John, that this band did not come from the underground like all these other bands did. Like you talk about like the entire Seattle scene, like these were just the underground bands. Nirvana got huge and then everybody got scooped up afterwards there's just no street cred to them. And the fact that these guys just like made a band two years ago and got scooped up. That's just what ha- was happening. And that's what happens in every scene. Someone gets big, they get signed and then record companies swoop in and try to find every other band that sounds like them to sign and market and push out there. And they're even talking about this article, how much money that Bush is making at this time. Like the, We all know that the the career that Bush ended up hap- having like throughout the 90s they were a giant band by after this they would have been playing arenas during this tour that they're talking about in this article they were playing medium-sized clubs so i think it's just it just sucks for this band or any band that gets scooped up i mean they're talking about how like people just like outright hate them like inter- uh, reviewers and f- other people just like music fans, but they obviously have a shitload of fans. They have a lot of people coming. They're saying that they're upgraded their tour bus three times on this tour. And yeah, when you're saying, John, that all these people are moshing, like that was just the thing to do. Like it was go out and you saw that on MTV and you moshed, but he's saying, hey guys, let's all just have a great time here. (laughs) Like We don't need to hurt each other.
2: It reminds me of how everyone, everyone, a lot of people hated stone temple pilots as well so it just makes me feel like anyone that was not from that core seattle scene that was playing grunge music just got hated on right and these guys came a little bit after that and just got shat on so hard
1: but i feel like the hate for for bush was different than the hate for stone temple pilots
2: it is you know, know everyone said like that you know, Scott Weiland was just ripping off like Eddie Vedder's like vocal style and stuff, but they still, I think they still got lumped in as a second gen kind of grunge band. Right.
0: Stone and maybe Big
2: Bush Big. was a third brand, third, third gen
0: even. But it's so funny. That's such a short amount of time. When we think of when grunge blew up, it was 1991. Temple Pilots had their first record in 1992, most of these bands, yeah, I don't.
1: That's funny because maybe I, I don't remember the hate for Stone Temple Pilots. I considered them like, like kind of first wave grunge. I remember negativity,
2: you know, like not not like all encompassing, but
0: I always I think remember it was that
2: there. And I think that I, I, I don't. It's it's in my memory for sure that they did catch like some flack like that. It's not the same as Bush, but I think there's a little overlap.
0: It never made sense to me when I started hearing that. In 1995, music was just one big blob of music, of alternative music. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't old enough. Like, I was 15 at this time, and I was just getting heavy into music in 1994 at 14. So that whole first, like, few years of grunge, 91, 92, 93, I was there for it, but I wasn't differentiating between a bunch of different scenes and bands and like really heavy into it. Like maybe you were a little more just being a tiny bit older. And when I hear, heard about this with Stonewall pilots at the time, like I just thought like this was all like one sound. But when I started hearing afterwards, people saying like SCP just ripped them off. I started thinking, how could that be possible? Like there's no way that this band like heard Pearl Jam and within six months goes, okay, change our entire sound, do this so we get signed and got signed and made a record. That's impossible. What happened was they found another band that sounded really similar when they went out and scoured the country for other Nirvana Soundgarden Pearl Jam bands and they found Stone Pilots and capitalized on them quick because they saw another band that just happened to be doing the same thing with a very similar vocal style.
2: I totally agree with that. I think that's exactly what happened. I don't think that it's really easy to overnight decide that, hey, we're going to play this kind of music and then be really good at it. You know, same with Bush. Gavin Rossdale seems ashamed of mentioning what the other two bands are that he was in. He doesn't even want to name them. But he obviously um, was playing rock music to some degree that was probably somewhat similar to what he what bush sounded like because you can't just you know he wasn't like a dj or something you know like stylistically i'm sure that it evolved over time and they were scooped up because they probably sounded like the way that they the the record labels wanted them to sound right so you know i don't i don't want to believe that they sounded like something then the record execs were like okay well you just need to you know hit the distortion pedal during the chorus is more and then you know like we'll we'll make you stars I, I I don't it's really hard for me to believe that these bands kind of exist to solely rip off what was popular before I think that a lot of them were kind of growing into a style that was becoming popular over time and some bands like Nirvana and some of those other bands kind of came out first with it. know like who knows what was bubbling up from the surface of that style right like maybe if nirvana didn't exist maybe the pixies would have actually gotten really popular on their own and been a mainstream band it's it's uh someone's got to be first right
1: it's sometimes why i don't like hearing kind of music referred to as manufactured because obviously some of it is but i think a lot of what's referred to as manufactured is people ripping someone off versus hearing a record getting really excited by it and going you know ooh that's what i want to do you know we talked about stone temple pilots and not having enough time like there's no way there's enough time between like pearl jam and nirvana hitting it and them doing their first album bush there was probably enough time for him to like hear never mind go yeah that but it's not malicious you know he just went oh that's something i want to do and then you know within 94 whenever 93 94 they were looking around for stuff like that um i have to mention you know he was pretty so uh how much did that play into it um Certainly, if you'd asked teenage me, I probably would have said a heck of a lot. Uh, It's probably unfair.
2: I would never mix up Nirvana with Bush, you know, like stylistically, they both are rock bands, but I just don't think it's close enough to me that I feel like Bush was blatantly ripping them off. I think that there's a lot of the influences that these bands have. Sometimes I think they share them and
1: the end result is similar. That's actually a really good point, because uh, there's a song, Swallowed, Swallowed. Swallowed. Yes. Swallowed yeah, yeah Swallowed, Swallowed is off their second record, I think, is the first that single. Cool. That it may be more Pixies than anything Nirvana, than any Nirvana single. More blatantly Pixies. I mean, Nirvana always said they were just ripping off Pixies, but I never quite made the connection between the actual final results. But... It's true, like a song like that, I think is yeah, it's probably more ripping off Pixies, even though I just used the term ripping off, influenced by. There could be a like, there could be a good case that Bush was simply influenced by some of the same people who were influencing uh, Kurt and other bands.
0: I will point out that Swallowed is produced that record Razorblade Suitcase is produced by Steve Albini, the same producer as the Pixies. <laughs>
2: And the same producer as In Utero. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? So I don't think anyone's like, like thinking that Gavin Rossdale doesn't think Nirvana's awesome. Yeah. But, you know, I think that maybe Gavin Rossdale was also a really big fan of the Pixies and maybe Flipper and all of these other bands that, you know, you know, when one of you, you run into somebody and, you know, you share a lot of the same, musical influence It, it does happen right and the kind of music you play like maybe maybe you're just you're working with the same ingredients and sometimes the cake's gonna taste kind of the same right
0: it sucks for a band like bush where you're influenced by these people and but you just happen to be influenced by the bands that are absolutely popular at the time Whereas Nirvana was certainly influenced by a bunch of bands, but they were a bunch of other underground bands that no one had ever heard of before. And then Nirvana got big. So Nirvana was a punk band, but they're also heavily influenced by the Melvins, who are their friends from Aberdeen. They're also heavily influenced by punk. They're also heavily influenced by Led Zeppelin they were blending lead and the Beatles. Yeah. Like all of these melodic things, but no one ever gave Nirvana shit for this because when they came out and got huge and I will say like nothing can ever happen like Nirvana again, like not to get into that conversation, but like there was a band from the underground that got scooped up and went to number one within like a few months. It was absolutely incredible for a band like that to just change culture but no one ever. The gave only band, because the that. only
1: person who gave Kurt shit for ripping anyone off was Kurt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was the most self,
2: self-deprecating, and he called out anyone that he he felt like he ripped off, even though objectively it didn't really always sound like he did rip them off. But in his mind, he, he's he's a very smart individual. Like in his mind, he would see the nuances of the music that he was creating and how he was borrowing from those influences. And he probably felt guilty in his hilarious way and would call it out.
0: And even in this article, Gavin Rosdale, when he comments, <laughs> when people say we hate you because you're rip- you're a ripoff artist, he responds to that saying, you can't name one band that has not sounded like a previous band. And he's right. There's so many bands that we all love that will, completely cop to the fact that they are influenced by someone else. Like how many people there was like these, these musical milestones when people said, I saw the Beatles on TV and that's when I knew I wanted to make a band. And then everybody did that. I saw the sex pistols. And then I knew that you could just play this easy four chord music and just bash stuff out and you didn't have to be Jimi Hendrix. And then everybody took off and no one really pissed on them about that. And, you know, like these are bands that like pretty much n- had never happened before and then came and then spawned just like a generation of people. But it really sucks for a band like Bush who just like happened. Like g- I don't think Bush are bad. I really don't. I think they're f- totally fine. And I mean, at the, I guess at the time, too, when I first heard them again, this was when I was first discovering music. So I didn't think that these guys were like some like Nirvana light at all. So I never had this mentality, but I think someone who was like five years older than me would have like absolutely hated them and I can see why. Sometimes
2: there's just a cool factor. The the Nirvana were the cool kids and Bush were not, somehow. I kinda see a bit of a comparison with um some Canadian bands. So I used to love and I still love the band Head with Noah Mintz, one of my one of my favorite bands of the nineties. Uh, every record they put out was fantastic. I remember seeing them so often, like, you know, I would talk to these guys and I was a fan, right? There's one bill where they played, I'm sure they played with this band a lot, the Killjoys. And I remember, I think Noah and Brandon both chat on the Killjoys so hard. They were like, those guys are so fucking lame and blah, blah, blah. And I was, I liked the Killjoys not as much as I liked the head. But you know, like they had a couple of good songs too, and it always baffles me that that these bands didn't like each other, and it, that there was this dissension between them, and that that even though they they fit on a bill together and they could be colleagues, they just one really dislike. Yeah, I'm sure the Killjoys love Head. Like most bands, like that band, um, and everyone should listen to Head still. Um, Because it's in terms of like Canadian grunge, (laughs) they were like the best Canadian grunge.
1: A lot of bands from that time, especially those Canadian bands, were like friends with each other or stayed in the scene or formed other bands. I mean, Head's a perfect example of that with uh, Noah and Brendan. But the Killjoys, it's true. Like, those guys did not come across as cool at all. No,
2: they didn't and they 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 wrote strong melodic songs, but they were ones that were sounded better on the radio. and you know they probably made better music videos. so those those cool kids um, in their in their community disliked them for it. You know, And I'm kind of I don't know, maybe the or maybe all the other bands liked them, but I just got the sense that, that head head was a pretty good sample of that scene. And I don't think the Killjoys were accepted.
0: You know, Head never never made it. Not that the Killjoys ended up being Nirvana or anything, but they certainly had more of an imprint on the radio and much music than Head did. I only knew Head because I had seen them live. They were a cool underground indie band, but the Killjoys were just a little bigger. So is there the, almost the exact same mentality as what we were talking about where there's the cool indie band. And then the other band that's in the exact same generation as them, not even ripping them off. Those guys got a little bigger and they were writing these fun melodic songs and getting just a tiny bit more airplay. And the cool indie band was like, fuck these guys. They, they sold out somehow.
1: Nirvana had the artsy weirdo side and Bush were just writing catchy songs and being pretty.
0: You know what? The funny thing is that Nirvana, to my point, they came from the underground. They got fucking huge. They were the biggest band in the world, and now everybody's shitting on Bush for getting big. It's like you're already comparing. Oh no! But they a didn't big... do it
1: the right way. I know. They didn't know. do it the right way, Jackson. Or they didn't do it with the right attitude. They didn't <laughs> rebel. You know? They didn't. They do were like I... cool with it. They just didn't get
0: scooped know. up from the underground and and told to be big, but they didn't want to be big. And then Bush all of a sudden wanted to be big and have that life. And they weren't as, yeah, as acceptable. You're right. But even
1: then, like, did is it so much something they wanted as something they were handed and they were like, okay, cool. You get Nirvana and they're obviously have these punk attitudes and they, Go on TV and they just don't bother with lip syncing or they, you know, trash things and he, you know, they um, just act like brats sometimes. And you get Pearl Jam, who immediately as soon as they get big, they start going into political causes and like serious stuff. Bush, just a band. And that's fine. But that put a ceiling on how cool they could ever be.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And being just a band is totally fine. But they just never... They were going to be successful, but they were never going to be cool, I guess. I don't know, but I never thought Bush were like a cool band, but I thought they were a good band. I didn't think they were douchebags. I didn't think they were flashy. They were just a band. And I think they were also, you know, getting pushed by a label to tell them what to do i mean it's not like they were ever that interesting or doing anything special so i think it's fine i mean like we like people were like bashing them then they probably bash them now but it, it, it was just kind of needless like they just happened to get plucked out of nowhere because of, of their sound at the very perfect time and they got to like ride out the rest of the nineties with that sound because Kurt was dead and Soundgarden and Allison chains had like one more record in them. And these guys just got to take over and just blend over that and ride out the nineties. And I think it's what was expected.
2: I think just the more I think about it, those other bands, those, those Seattle bands, they all just had so much personality They all were a cast of characters and we I feel I feel like we knew so much about them and they were all broken in some way and that just made them so much more interesting. Whereas, like we said, Bush kind of came out of nowhere. They they played to empty clubs for a little while, then they got swooped up by a record label and put out a record. Like that's not a fun story at all. Right. You know, like Mother Love Bone, you know, Andy Wood dying. Pearl Jam forming from that, the Temple of the Dog record, like Nirvana, with you know, pen cap to fecal matter, like all that stuff is just so, it's such a better story and it makes so much more, more interesting. They're writing books about like, how many books about Nirvana forming are there, right? And how many have you read? I've probably read all of them too. It's just so much better and that kind of like leads to the legend and the coolness factor. Bush didn't have that. They still were a great band, but that's why they're not as cool.
1: One band just popped in my head, and that's Radiohead, who their formation story is also pretty boring.
0: Radiohead is a so. tough example, John. <laughs>
1: because, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're truly money.
2: like the biggest anomaly of music, right? Like, no band can reinvent themselves as successfully uh, so many times as Radiohead, right?
1: But I just bring them up in terms of we were talking about cool and cool stories. And Radiohead did not have that really until, you know, like maybe the backlash against Creep was sort of the first sense of them kind of being cool and wanting and not, you know. But um, when we talk about how getting signed, getting formation, theirs is just a plain Jane story.
0: But Radiohead didn't need that cool story, like as it turns out, because they they are the weirdest example because they came out with Pablo Honey. Name another Pablo Honey song other than Creep, because it's not a great record.
1: Well, anyone can play guitar. Sure. Uh, do not ask me to name a second song. And then, uh.
0: but then they come out with the Benz, which I really loved, which was a very different record. And then they came out with OK Computer. And then that was just that no other band was doing this. Without getting into
1: like the (laughs) life story of Radiohead, you know, are are you saying that you think Bush would have benefited from a more interesting story? I
0: mean, it's possible. You know, I think we're ragging on Bush a little bit because most bands don't have that interesting a story. It's like four guys who were in high school and then they made a freaking band. You know, like did the did the talk? Well, yeah, have like it, a really I, I'm not trying to sort of give just... them a hard
1: time. I'm not trying to give them a hard time. I'm just sort of we're trying to talk about why were they never as cool as everybody else? You it's know, because... should he have uh, had a drug addict or a suicide attempt or should he have, you know, instead of wearing a sex pistol shirt should have been a, a Daniel Johnston shirt or yeah. like, you know, Did we just see him as inauthentic? Like, I don't know. Well, that's it, John. Maybe it was a rejection just because he was good looking, right? Well, yeah, that too. I mean, I probably was like, this guy's guy's too pretty. He can't be cool. Um, And even this this article, like, you do point out when they're sort of, they have lines, like, I think you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, so, so... So Bush's fans are teens who watch MTV and listen to the radio, the ones who want to be down but haven't quite found the local indie scene yet. So they're saying, you know, their fans are inexperienced and don't know any better. Right. Um, But overall, like the vibe I got wasn't super harsh, just trying to figure out who this is. What's the story here? Especially, you know, a music journalist wanting to be like, okay, you're you're on your way up as a rock star. What is your story here? And him just kind of going, "I don't know, I don't really have one."
0: Sometimes you need to sell a band with a story. I feel like it's a way more modern tale now because we have so much access to like all pieces of information where you can like research something and see where someone came from. Back then, all you had was these magazines. So, I don't I think maybe Bush could have been cooler and more accepted if they had a good story. But at the same time, we didn't know Nirvana's backstory when they all of a sudden blew up when I was 11 years old. They just got huge. And bands didn't need that story if they were just good and unique. But it is an interesting point, John, because maybe Bush would have been cooler if they had that story. If they there was some sort of fucked up story between them that they were all like living in some like hovel and some squat in London and making music or whatever like that, it would have made them cool. But they didn't really have that story. And most bands don't have that story either. And when you made up when you brought up Radiohead. Is like they didn't really have a cool story. Well, they didn't need one, (laughs) much like Nirvana didn't either because they were just unique and cool and blew up and did some fucking amazing shit. But Bush didn't really have that, and I guess they didn't really need it because they got popular anyways, but people hated them. (laughs) So I guess they would never be totally cool because they didn't have some cool story, but it didn't matter because a generation of Kids hanging out at the mall were all listening to them and going to see them
1: in arenas. It didn't matter because he married Gwen Stefani. Uh, but so did it matter? who cares? <laughs> who cares what anyone else thought? You know, oh, you're not cool. Uh, okay, well, if uh, I don't need to be cool, uh...
0: yeah, uh, it's not like no doubt we're like super cool either. And yeah, let's all be honest. He married Gwen Stefani, <laughs> so.
2: I guess End that's his story. story, right? Like that's one that of the more story. interesting things about him, you know. And yeah. and I haven't been hating on Bush at all, um, but let's I, say this: I think I think I think that the the root is you. The, the story kind of builds a legend, but if you don't have good music, at least from the get go, to get the attention, then you're not going anywhere. So everything Zen was a hit, you know. Machine Head was a hit. You know they're not my favorite songs of Bush's, but you know, it got it got enough attention that it helped grow from there. All these other bands that we're saying were like Nirvana ripoffs, you can rip off Nirvana all day long. That doesn't mean that you're gonna be good and no anyone's gonna want to listen to you, right? So Bush had something that people wanted to listen to, whether he was good looking or not.
0: All right guys, last but not least, who's number one in the charts? <laughs> Billboard. <laughs> Billboard magazine, Billboard charts, July twenty second, nineteen ninety five. I'm gonna start. I just want to say I'm gonna do the ten, but I also want to throw in that number twelve is Mirrorball by Neil Young.
1: Oh yeah,
0: that's the that's uh,
2: that's the EP with Pearl Jam, is it? Yeah, oh, exactly. With the, Pearl
0: Jam, the, the single Downtown is on here.
2: I, I remember liking that, I you know, and it had nice little um, cardboard packaging as well, to, you know. Which like was a jam. novelty
0: at that time.
2: Yeah, Pearl Jam being with the the Godfather of Grunge.
0: Yeah, go this on. Is 1995. This is the the summer. I remember this summer so clearly with all of this music. Number ten is a a gigantic. Female band, female trio, 1995, guys. It was probably the biggest R&B female trio. TLC? (laughs) TLC. TLC TLC is right, John. TLC with Crazy Sexy Cool. If you want to talk about much music videos that were played on repeat all day, every day, (laughs) it was definitely the most expensive video ever made at the time, Waterfalls directed by F Gary Gray that music video was a movie <laughs> it was
1: wow if you'd connection. asked me I might have guessed that that was like 96 or 97. oh really yeah
0: this was the first time I ever saw MTV was this summer I went to the states and saw it and they played this just on a loop essentially
1: well yeah much music did the same.
0: It did the same, but you know, much music we always talk about. Much music was a lot better, and I'd never seen MT. I mean, they had
1: to, they had to sprinkle in some Canadian stuff and some hip in between. So uh, yeah, of James course, MTV didn't have that problem.
0: They would, they would, and then all of a sudden, Fish Heads would come on, like the weirdest shit would just come on in the afternoon <laughs> out of nowhere. Number nine, guys, this is a giant reunion in the nineties. So you think Eagles?
1: Of, Oh,
0: yeah. I didn't even get to like go into my uh,
1: (laughs) my anecdote. I'm sorry. sorry. I couldn't resist.
0: (laughs) Eagles, hell freezes over. Was this the first like giant reunion
1: ever? It was. I don't know if it was the first giant reunion, but it was the first reunion of a band that openly and famously hated each other. Mm
0: -hmm. ABBA never really, they never reunited. You know, the. Beatles, obviously, like everybody wanted them to reunite and then John died. I think of this first generation of rock bands. This has had to be it. Like now we're so used to reunions with Coachella reuniting people in the 2000s. But this was a huge, huge deal. The Eagles reuniting. And exactly what you said, John, these guys hated each other (laughs) and they put out this record and it was just explosive because the Eagles are one of the best selling artists in history. They've been on the charts for 29 weeks, and they're at number nine.
2: Their old records are probably on the charts for like two years. Probably. You know, a lot of time, right?
0: I wouldn't doubt if we looked back and went through this that their old records probably re-entered the charts because of this. Number eight, um, one of the two biggest rappers of all time, biggest rappers of the 90s.
1: Is it Tupac? Is it... Yes, it's Tupac. Oh, I figured it was either Ham or Biggie. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like
0: 50 I was about to say, and they're dead, and then you would have still had to pick a 50 50. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Tupac, me against the world. Here's one that I'm, I'm really happy to see here. I did not know that this band, I mean, it makes sense. But I didn't think that they were like this high on the charts. This is a this is a heavy band. Uh, the lead singer uh, kind of raps. It was kind of like the first precursor to new metal. It is not Rage Against the Machine. But certainly, when new metal happened, this band got even bigger with a lead singer that eventually took over a solo career and was just as big as his band. Metal band, I would say. Metal, alternative metal band.
2: You got me.
1: This is great trivia, though.
0: I don't know how much more I can say. Uh, The lead singer... Yeah, I mean,
1: I don't think I'm going to get this, but...
0: You're going to get it. Maybe I've done a bad job describing this, but it's White Zombie, Astro Creep 2000.
2: Oh, I was, I was gonna say white zombie.
0: Oh, were you, Nyan?
2: I was actually
0: <laughs> number six. One of the biggest movies of the '90s, their soundtrack that was. This has been 47 weeks on the charts. So this is a movie from 1994. This soundtrack has bled into 1995 now. It was probably the biggest movie of 1994. If I say any more. <laughs> it won best picture
1: <laughs> Forrest gump
0: forest gump john the soundtrack
1: forest gump soundtrack 42 double, wow. soundtrack. double yeah. album yeah i don't remember that being a thing but
0: really oh man i definitely remember this being a thing and i don't mind this soundtrack at all i mean if you wanted to like get a, a quick overview of the 60s and 70s this is your soundtrack right here
1: <laughs> It's a it's like a best of, right? Yeah. It's the best of those years. Yeah. As soon as you said it, I was like, oh right, yeah. I, I can imagine what's on there. There's
0: five door songs on this record. <laughs> <laughs> Number five is a guy I've never fucking heard of. <laughs> it's John Michael Montgomery with his self-titled record. Anyone
1: I, I feel like I remember that name. He but, is a uh, country very artist. Very vague, very vague.
0: Yeah, country artist, I'm pretty sure. Not. You got me.
2: I, I, I don't remember him at all.
0: Yeah, I don't know. How about number four? I would say is for sure the biggest R&B boy band of the 90s.
1: Boys to Men?
0: That's right. Boys to Boys, John. Yeah, beat me to it. <laughs> it's Boys to Men with their album 2. <laughs> That's such a clever them. title. I know. Good for them. Solid songs on this. This was this was slow dance grade 9.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> end of the Road is a great oh, song. Oh, yeah.
1: I've, I've well, this is an End of the, in the Road. mind used to, every time he'd have his DJ nights in the like late 2000s, they'd end it with uh, End of the Road. No,
0: wait. This is an End of the Road. End of the Road is oh. the first record. Uh, this is, uh...
1: oh, shit. But I think I remember what you're talking about, though. I yeah. know the singles can't off of this. Just,
0: <laughs> I can't think of the name of it right now. Number three. I want to see if you guys can get this. Number three is a soundtrack. It is an all-black comedy. Uh, Two breakout stars in this movie. The star of the movie wrote the movie. And the director is F. Gary Gray, who also directed the Waterfalls video for TLC. It had a big soundtrack. Uh, Dr. Dre had a huge song on this soundtrack. It's the Friday soundtrack starring Ice Cube and Chris Tucker.
2: Wow. Wow. I'm impressed that it got that high in the charts. I thought that would be like a little bit more under the radar.
0: I think the movie at the time was very under the radar. It kind of gained popularity and it probably gained popularity because of this soundtrack because there was big Mm. Dr. Dre songs on it. And let's be honest, in 1995, Dr. Dre was on top of the world. So it had Ice Cube and it had a big Dr. Dre track on it selling it. So that makes a lot of sense. Number two, I don't know how to describe this band, but they were a gigantic band in 1994 and 1995. Oh, <laughs> I don't even know like what clues I can give away for this without just like saying the songs. Rock band. Rock band. Big, big rock band with a, obviously giant record because it is number two on the charts it has been on the charts for 57 weeks um Aerosmith? good guess john but different oh, genre. this is like this is your alternative genre
1: wow yeah wow uh, yeah so that's i mean that's another album where like how long did you say it's been up? 57 weeks on the charts. Yeah, because like, I guess I was not made at 94, but yeah. I would have guessed it was 95, but yeah.
0: What clues could you have given to give away that band? I was sitting here racking my brain. What would I say to
1: give You could clues? have said that it was basically their one huge album. Yeah. Was it their debut yeah. album? Definitely, so, their yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it stretched on forever. It had how many four singles, I think, off of it that went on for a long time. They stretched.
1: Ooh, three. ooh. Uh, hey. uh, you could, you could have, you could have said that they recently headlined the Burlington Sound of Music with Bush.
2: <laughs> you, you know, I know we talked about this on a, on a, on another pod, but I saw them with Bush and Our Lady Peace together in Ottawa on that same tour. I was working in Ottawa at a music festival and they headlined the one night and I didn't want to bring it up again. You can cut this, but Bush was amazing. Our Lady Peace was amazing. And live just seemed so full of themselves. There was no real like
1: Like you're talking I, I just, about the tour that happened a few years ago? Yeah,
2: like two years ago.
1: And live were still full of themselves? Still, <laughs> still I don't know. It's just
2: I, I didn't I didn't like their vibe. You know, like the other <laughs> The other ah. two bands seem more great. Like Gavin Rossdale is very gracious, and I think he's very thankful of being able to do this, and and, it, and they give it like hundred percent. I'm
1: glad to hear. Hourly,
2: that. Yeah, and I know that there's no Our Lady Peace love um, here from John, especially.
1: Hey, I like um, but, stuff more than uh, more than uh, clumsy.
2: Yeah, but they were they were fantastic, and it, I I listened to like Our Lady Peace for like a week after that show. Just being like, oh, I, I forgot, like, these guys wrote some really good songs, you know? Live, I was like, oh, God, this is, when's this set over? It sounded really
0: dated. I mean, Noyan, when you've got throwing copper money like live does, you don't have to give a shit.
2: <laughs> I guess not. You know, another side note, their music video for I Alone still, to me, is one of the worst music videos I've ever seen in my whole life it is such a pile of garbage it's like it looks like it was filmed by like uh, like like a high school student and it's just ed whatever his face is running around with, with no shirt on in slow motion and it's, it's it's you should look it up it's so terrible
1: i can is it worse sure. than edwin's alive oh
2: yes yeah
1: Wow, wow. And that's okay.
2: that's about, like, okay. Edwin. Edwin okay. is, like, Strong on that words. list as well. Like, if, if there was a Razzies of, like, music videos, like, Edwin would be taking home a lot of awards, too.
0: Yeah, that I Alone video is terrible. It was an era where, you know, I was always trying to figure out the story of videos, and that one was just one... St- I'm pretty sure one static shot of a band. It was, in, yeah. like, half slow-mo. And also... Ed, the lead singer, had a shaved head and he had the one like ponytail strand off the back, like that one tiny braid that he left. You call that a rat tail. It wasn't even a rat tail, man. It was like (laughs) in the middle of his head, like this thing that he left. It was horrible, and that was just spinning around in slow motion.
2: (laughs) It was so bad. It was not clever.
0: It was just and it was also just the worst style. I remember watching that. Like, I mean, that vid- I think that was probably their first video. I don't know how that sold a band. <laughs> With that terrible style and that horrible video. All right, number one. Number one was a gigantic band in the 90s. They've been on... This is their debut record. They've been on the charts for 46 weeks. This is number one. A band that everyone made fun of. I mean, you want to talk about uncool bands... Here it is, but they were gigantic enough that to sell millions and millions of copies. One of the best-selling artists, I'd say, of the '90s as a band. Really light, dumb. It was like the. It was worse than the Bare Naked Ladies in the sense that it was like fun, dumb. Bands.
1: Oh, Hootie and the Blowfish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yes, John, you're right. It's Hootie the Blowfish with cracked rear view. I love that you jumped in with that horrible description. Okay. John
2: wins. John, you, John you're John, you on
0: fire. Just panning a band to death. Oh,
1: Hootie and the Blowfish. Well, it was when you mentioned the bare naked ladies, who, for the record, are way better than Hootie and the Blowfish, but then my mind kind of jumped to sort of like happy, inoffensive. I only want to be with you. An entire video. And they're you know, Their uh, cover, they cover of uh, uh, 5440. Yeah.
2: If they were named something else, I feel like they could have probably been way bigger.
1: You're right. You know? Because Darius, Darius Rucker, Rucker band?
2: and I don't even know how, how I know his name, Darius Rucker is still a very popular touring musician.
0: musician. I know. He reinvented himself as country, and he's done incredibly well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, bad names.
0: If it had been the Darius Rucker band, we would have it would have been better. They just would have gone on tour with the Dave Matthews band and they would have had a following. But it was Hootie and the Blowfish. Like, let's talk about fucking terrible band names. Here's just about number one. And they got to number yeah. one on the billboard. They sold millions and millions of records.
2: So despite the name, or is it because of the name? Do you think that the name gave them that attention, that, that they stood out, like the name is ridiculous and it just made them more special? Or do you think that the name held them back and they could have been bigger? I think, I think they could have been bigger just because I think the quality of the music was actually really good.
0: Do you think they actually Not, could have I wasn't been a bigger fan. than they were I wasn't because a fan, they were but... pretty big? I mean, it's funny. If that name didn't hold them back, then why did... Why did Live get big off the I Alone video? <laughs> like it makes no sense. <laughs> these these things happening.
2: I think Live got big off of uh, Lightning Crashes. I know. Yeah. You're I right. think I think the the door opened with I Alone, and Lightning Crashes like was was massive. But I think Live also has a stupid name.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's a dumb name. Hootie and the Blowfish just god awful man.
1: But I mean,
2: very Googleable name. <laughs> live, try try Googling
1: live. I mean, you know, you know, who else had their debut album in the summer of '95? Rainbow Butt Monkeys. Oh, well, it might have been '94. Might have been '94. Sorry.
2: Letter of Some Chutney. mistake. Oh, yeah.
1: Guys, do you know who
0: else debuted this week at number 36? A little band. If you want to talk about post grunge, guys. A little band called the Foo Fighters debuted their debut record this week. As as I remember it, that drummer from Nirvana's new band didn't even know his name.
1: Really? I'm surprised about that. I knew their names.
0: I sort of you was had, listening you to had, Dave. You I would Ron have just said Stoner. Dave. I know, but like I would have been it was like Kurt, Dave and Chris. Even Dave, I like like it was really like Kurt. You knew Kurt you're going back to, like, the drummer of Nirvana. They were a gigantic band, I know. And was I, like, the most crazy fanboy of Nirvana? No. I liked them. Did I absolutely know who Dave Roll was? No. I probably knew Dave. And, and at the same time, I wouldn't have remembered his name. I would have said, it's the drummer from Nirvana's new band.
2: There's a B-side on, I believe, the Heart-Shaped Box single. Or it could be the Rape Me single. Um, That is one of Dave Grohl's songs. It's called Marigold.
1: Yeah, I I have heard of Marigold. I don't know if I've ever actually heard it. I didn't realize it was like a B-side on a single. But I knew that there was like an official Nirvana song that was his. It's a nice...
2: I saw him play it at other shows. Because I I think I saw like... I think I saw like the first seven shows that the Foo Fighters played in Toronto. Okay. And then I kind of lost a bit like I said the I saw them the first time they ever played in Toronto they opened for Mike Watt at the Opera House and that was like probably one of my most memorable shows cuz so Dave Mike Mike Watt did his his first tour and his backing band was Dave Roll on drums Eddie Better on guitar and someone else and then the opening bands were Foo Fighters for their first show they ever played in Toronto and Eddie Betters um side project that he had with his wife called hovercraft and this show was just it was like a year in a dream because you're seeing eddie vedder and dave roll play this guy's tunes and then or uh and and like foo fighters were amazing too they played like maybe seven songs i think half those songs didn't even make it onto the first record
0: can i read you guys a letter from this issue that we're talking about thank you very much for being the sole reason eddie vedder pulled out of the mike watt tour I was at the Sacramento show last night where Vetter was suspiciously absent. Both Watt and the promoters said that Vetter was pissed off because of the unsolicited publicity your fucking magazine gave the show. He wanted it to be Watts show, not his, so we jumped ship. Thank you, idiots.
1: <laughs> Beautiful. Who's the name? Give us the name give, give the credit. Give the credit.
0: You want for, it, Johnny? Uh... This is the best because this is nineteen ninety five. Liz Fisher, Rock at AOL.com.
2: That's awesome. I, I never heard of, heard that. You don't, these are the kind of things that you don't hear. Like, I, you know, I don't think I own that magazine. I, I would have never seen that. I'm glad that he didn't pull out before the show that I saw.
0: And that's it, guys. Thanks so much for coming on again. It's always a pleasure to do this cast with you. Thanks, Noyan and John.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks. It was fun. See you guys later.